You know, Ken, there are no good analogies. No, they all limp. And as you say, most of mine just, you know, limp their way right off the <laughs> cliff. But, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the difference between like a little league mm -hmm. coach and maybe like a professional coach. Um, you know, a little league coach says, yeah, I know you can't really swing the bat very well. And, you know, we're going to give you 10 strikes and let it instead mm -hmm. of three and whatever. And everybody gets a trophy because, you know, you're all winners in my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Versus the the college coach who's like, I'm going to make you into winners. Yeah, and you have to be a winner. Right. And you're going to actually be winners when I'm done yeah. with you. Yes. Yes. That, that's a good analogy. That one doesn't limp. That one doesn't, doesn't go off a cliff or anything. That one stands, it sits on a throne of glory. Well, hello and welcome to another Good to the Last Drop episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We are with the Coming Home Network. If you want to find out more about our apostolate, and it is all about helping people with any kind of questions or concerns that might be leading them to the Catholic faith, visit us at chnetwork.org. If you like what you're watching, please subscribe and uh, let us know. Uh, what you're what you're thinking? We'd love to hear from you, Ken. We have been going now for 15 solid episodes on the question of sola fide and justification. So the 16th time around, what in the world are we going to be talking about? <laughs> and we could we could do many many more. I've got to tell you because basically every verse in the Bible touches on the subject of salvation, and so we would need to exegete the whole Bible to really cover it. But yeah, where are we at? What are we doing? All right, well. The title of this series, A Damning System of Works Righteousness, comes from a quotation from a Calvinist Protestant theologian. Serious Protestants, you know, that I refer to often as serious Reformation-minded Protestants, they view the Catholic teaching on justification, salvation, to be a damning system of works, a damning system of works righteousness. Well, over the course of 15 episodes now, what I've tried to uh, explain is how I learned um, that the Reformation doctrine of justification by the legally imputed righteousness of Christ received by faith alone, you know, quote unquote, the South said, how I learned, how I came to learn that this is a view of justification that was actually never even contemplated in the first 1500 years of Catholic history, Christian history. And how I concluded um, with a lot more study that the reason it was never contemplated is because it is simply not the teaching of the Bible. It's not the teaching of the Old Testament. It's not the teaching of the New Testament. And those listening to this, you'll have to go back and, and view many episodes if you want to fill in the blanks on what I've just said. Okay, at the same time, we've tried to explain how we came to understand that the Catholic doctrine is not a damning system of works righteousness, but is a doctrine of grace from beginning to end. According to the decree concerning justification, from the Council of Trent, just listen to this. It is God's grace that draws us initially to Christ, his prevenient grace, his quickening grace. It is God's grace that awakens in us faith in Christ, love for God, hatred of sin, the desire to repent. It's God's grace then that washes us clean in the sacrament of baptism, removing our hearts of stone, giving to us new hearts, hearts of flesh, 
It is God's grace that gives us the Holy Spirit to move us, cause us to begin to walk in his ways. We've learned that it's God's grace that enables us then to obey his commandments. It's God's grace that restores us when we fall into sin. It's God's grace that gives us the ability, gives us the ability to persevere in faith and the obedience of faith to the end. And then when we have left this world, the Council of Trent teaches clearly it is God's grace that treats his gifts as our merits and rewards us with eternal life. Well, that all sounds great, Ken, but what's the Catholic teaching? <laughs> that is the Catholic teaching. And that's, it's shocking to to hear uh, from a Protestant perspective mm-hmm. that that's what the Catholic Church te- teaches about salvation. You know, there's this, I guess, illusion from the outside that we don't care anything about grace. We just care about, you know, some kind of a ledger or a balance sheet or box checking. That's right. But it's grace from start to finish. Yeah. And the, and again, I, I'm taking those points. We've taken those points from the decree concerning justification from the Council of Trent. And this is what it is teaching, grace from the beginning, grace all along. In fact, a beautiful way to sum up the Catholic teaching on justification is to say that justification is the gift of divine sonship. It's about God infusing into you and I his own divine life, adopting us to be his sons and daughters, remolding us, into the image in which we were created, the perfect image of Christ, and inviting us, again grace, forever into the fellowship and joy and love of the Blessed Trinity. This is and what can, this is what justification yeah, amounts to. Go ahead. We've we've said this before, but I think it bears repeating, especially in the context of where we're going to go with this, is that when we talk about the Catholic view of salvation and the scriptural way that mm-hmm. salvation is described, in some ways it is like a criminal who is being absolved mm-hmm. of his wrongdoing. In other ways, it's like someone who owes a lot of money being forgiven a debt. Mm-hmm. But it's most like a wayward child being welcomed back into a family. And that's really what we're going to get into. Amen. The The story of the prodigal son, it is most like that. Okay, so let's go back then. Let's look at this idea of divine sonship. And to look at it, we'll go back to the very beginning, chapter 1 of Genesis When God created man and woman, he created them in his image and likeness, or to be his image and likeness. That is, to be like him, to reflect his nature, his character, his being, to be mirrors of God, as it were, little finite mirrors of God, and to rule over creation under him. Let me read from Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. We are to function, in other words, as God's representatives in this world. Now, while our likeness to God no doubt involves um, our existing as rational beings, reflecting God's rationality, existing as moral beings, reflecting God's moral character, creative beings, reflecting God's creative nature. I think the best way to sum up what it means, and I'm talking scripturally here, the best way to sum up what it means to say that we are the image and likeness of God is to say that we are created as God's children, as God's sons and daughters. And this comes directly from Genesis chapter 5, where we read, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. I love that. He became the father of a son in his own likeness after his image and named him 
Seth. So it should have been obvious, really, but to be the image and likeness is like to be a son or to be a daughter. It's, it's to be born of the same nature um, to, re, to reflect your father and your mother. It's sonship, okay? Yeah, and it doesn't. This doesn't apply to other aspects of creation. I mean, a hamster can make an interesting burrow and you know raise its own little hamster babies, but it cannot paint the Sistine Chapel, nor can it uh, follow a moral code. You know, uh, it can make some interesting piles of cedar shavings, but it's a hamster. It is not meant to be uh, a, a recipient of divine filiation like you and I. Yeah, and a dolphin may understand a couple of things, but it's not going to be drawing you know syllogisms on a chalkboard or anything like that. No. We are unique in all of creation, created to be sons and daughters of God. In short, to be the likeness, to be the image of God, is to be a son of God. It's to be a daughter of God. It's to be a, a mirror of God's being and nature. Now, as we know, in the fall of the human race, this was lost. This was damaged. Instead of being mirrors of God's glory, instead of being exact representations of his nature, as Hebrews chapter 1 describes Jesus as being the exact representation of God's nature. Instead of that, we've become something like the funhouse mirrors that we see at a carnival, where, 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 you, where you stand in front of the mirror and everything is distorted. It's a lie. I hate those things. They make me look bald. <laughs> um, well, I hate to tell you. They make your hoary head look even hoarier. Yeah, that's right. They make me look like I have white hair. But, but listen, you stand in front of one of those mirrors and you know the story, right? It's you. You can still detect that it's you, but it, but it's all distorted. It, it's twisted. It's deformed. And that's how we have become. We don't mirror perfectly God's image anymore. The image and likeness of God is still evident within a human being, but there's this distortion caused by sin. And because of this, then the goal of redemption ends up being that we would be restored to our status as sons and daughters of God, that we would be um, remolded into the image in which we were created so that we would reflect his nature once again. And this is... All right, you ready for a marathon through Romans then? Yeah, and this is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start there, then I'll go back. Let's do the whole book of Romans in 30 <laughs> yeah. seconds or less. Well, that's coming up. First, Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption of sons the redemption of our bodies. So what, what Paul is saying here, here is that from the fall of Adam and Eve, the entire created universe has been groaning in travail, yearning to be delivered from the bondage of sin and death, the curse that came upon it, to the freedom of the sons of God. And what Paul wants to announce in the gospel is simply that now in Christ Jesus, this has come about. And, and now, here, here's my super condensed my super condensed 30 second, maybe 45 second summary of Romans 1 through 8. Maybe two minutes. In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes the announcement For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, as we have taught, as we've seen many of episodes, is not about the legal imputation of righteousness to the account of the one who has faith, it's about the power of God the power of God to restore us to righteousness. In Romans chapters 2 through 4, Paul insists that justification is by faith in Christ, not by receiving circumcision and keeping the Mosaic law. In Romans chapter 5, Paul explains that while we were previously in Adam, 
where sin and death reigned. Those who have faith are now in Christ, where righteousness and life reign. This, he says, is the state of grace in which we now stand as we have faith in Christ Jesus. And then in Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us that he gives us the how. He tells us how this came about. How were we translated from being in Adam to being in Christ, from being the children of Adam to becoming the children of God? And this is what he says. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Therefore, do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life. And this passage makes me think again of the typology of the Exodus that you and I have been discussing. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that at the Red Sea, the Israelites were baptized into Moses. And the narrative makes it clear that this is where the radical break was made with their previous lives as slaves in Egypt. Before the Red Sea, they were slaves in Egypt. They walked out there when they went through the Red Sea. And when the Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen and all were buried in the water, this is when they were no longer slaves. This is the moment when the radical break was made. And, and, and this is what Paul is saying in Romans 6 happened to us when we were baptized into Christ. He says, we were no longer slaves to sin, but we were set free. And he, here's the thing, Matt. It's clear that he is speaking existentially, that he's speaking of something that has application now in our lives. He's not simply saying that once you were baptized, now you have the status of sons and daughters of God. He's saying that at some deeply profound level, the power of sin and death has been broken in our lives, and we are free. We are free now to walk in obedience. Um, we are free to walk in obedience. And I just think that is so awesome. And that's why he says, don't yield your members to sin. I mean, and this is practical. This is existential. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, you know, therefore, starting now, stop yielding your members. You don't have to anymore. You've been brought from death to life. You know, Ken, there are no good analogies. No, they all limp. And as you say, most of mine just, you know, limp their way right <laughs> off the cliff. But, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the difference between like a little league mm -hmm. coach and maybe like a professional coach. Um, you know, a little league coach says, yeah, I know you can't really swing the bat very well. And, you know, we're going to give you 10 strikes and let it instead mm -hmm. of three and whatever. And everybody gets a trophy because, you know, you're all winners in my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Versus the the college coach who's like, I'm going to make you into winners. Yeah, and you have to be a winner. Right. And you're going to actually be winners when I'm done yeah. with you. Yes. Yes. That, that's a good analogy. That one doesn't limp. That one doesn't doesn't go off a cliff or anything. That one stands. It sits on a throne of glory. Can we we need to like uh, have like some kind of like a little dinger yeah. that goes off whenever I get something right on this. Okay. This well, the thing about Paul though, announcing the gospel as the power of God. Explaining to us what it's not. It's not about becoming a Jew. It's not about being circumcised and living according to the laws of Moses. Telling us what it is about. It's about being translated from being in Adam to being in Christ. How does it happen? When does it happen? In baptism. And then in Romans 8, he focuses on the fact that it is the Spirit in us, given to us, that has set us free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is where, as a Calvinist, I would have thought the next line would be, there's no condemnation because God has legally credited Christ's righteousness to my account. Instead, Paul says, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death, in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you and I who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The just requirements of the law can be fulfilled in our lives now, not by legal imputation again, but by the Spirit that gives us the ability to walk in Christ's ways. Paul goes on, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Finally then, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul explains that now as sons and daughters of God, the Spirit is at work right now remolding us back into the perfect image in which we were created. And we all, according Paul, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one stage of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And you see how we've come full circle from our creation in God's image to the loss of that image in the fall, to being adopted in Jesus Christ and being fully renewed in the image of our Creator. Now, Ken, just to be clear, as a Wesleyan Arminian person who was in the holiness movement and all that, nothing you have said is problematic to me so far, right? <laughs> right? I mean, everything you're saying, I'm tracking with. Uh, and there are a lot of Protestants out there who are saying, I don't see what the big deal is. But if you're a Reformed Christian who mm -hmm. follows, you know, Calvinistic theology or or that strain of thought that descends most directly from Martin Luther and the people who followed him, um, then then you do have to kind of like say, now wait a second, let's qualify. Yeah, this. it just happens to be the case. Not not just the most seriously Reformed de denominations that we think of, you know, purely you know Orthodox, Presbyterian, Reformed, Baptist, you know, classically Reformed denominations. But most non-denominational evangelicals hold the, the Calvinist view of justification and view it as legal crediting um, so that we now have this a status in God's sight as sons and daughters of God and separated entirely from sanctification. But I don't want to go back into uh, lessons that we went through in detail there, so I won't go on any further with that. But this is how Catholic theology looks at it. In fact, here's how one Catholic writer summed up the entirety of the Catholic faith in terms of divine sonship. And I really like this quotation. God is our father. We are his children. That is the whole of our holy religion. The reason Christianity is different from other religions and surpasses them infinitely is because it is the religion of the children of God, the religion of a God who is a father. No other religion has ever dared to postulate the existence of a love of such a love on the part of God, or such grandeur in man. The church is the society of the children of God. It is the great family of the Heavenly Father. And yes, this distinguishes Christianity from all of the world's religions. None of them conceive of God yeah. as a father who, who, like in the prodigal son, just waits, you know, waits for his to see his son coming back over the hill and then runs and embraces him. Only in Christianity. 
Yeah, a lot of religions just don't even have a category for thinking of a god like this or a divine being like this. And other religions would think that to refer to God in this way would be a form of blasphemy. Um, Islam mm -hmm. example that comes to, directly to my head. Um, and even as you read in the Gospels, uh, you know, Jesus, the way that Jesus invokes this image of fatherhood even almost gets him killed a couple of times before the crucifixion because he's accused of being blasphemous. Yeah, yeah for invoking God as this kind of father. So even though Judaism, Judaism has a role of God as father, the way that Jesus is invoking it is something mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. it's a new layer uh, to what they already yeah, understood. You know, I've often thought when I speak to people who are, you know, um, let's say uh, have bought into Eastern philosophies, you know, and they think that it's, you know, God is an impersonal force, not a person at all. And I like to ask the question, so, so, so you're saying it, that it's superior to think that God is less than we are? You know, we are personal beings, we are rational creatures, moral creatures, and God, and your vision of God is not that. It doesn't even include that, and that's superior somehow to have him be an impersonal force like electricity or whatever. Yeah, I, I take the Han Solo approach to that. You know, if that's what you believe, then as far as I'm concerned, hoagie religions and ancient wisdom are no match for a good blaster at your side. In the time that we have left, Matt, I want to approach again the Catholic teaching on the necessity of good works in the light of this idea of justification as divine sonship, okay? Because this is where the, you know, damning system of works righteousness, uh, you know, charge comes in. Catholicism teaches clearly that in order to inherit eternal life, we must perform good works. We must persevere in faith and the obedience of faith to the end. And when Protestants think of Catholicism as a damning system of works righteousness, it's because they're thinking that the kind of works we Catholics have in mind when we say that works are required, they're thinking that the kind of works we have in mind are the kind of works that Paul condemns through, throughout Romans, Galatians, all of his letters, really, and in a passage like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where Paul says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not because of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, in, in past ep episodes, you and I have tried to show, well, actually in three different ways, we have shown how Protestants who say this are misunderstanding Paul and they're misunderstanding what Catholics mean by good works. And, and I want to walk through that again and then add a fourth reason yeah. based on this idea of sonship. And as you do that, you know, I often want to ask when someone accuses me of you know, being part of a, a damning system of works righteousness, I, 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 I'm often tempted to ask, well, what works do you think that I think I have to do in order to get into heaven? Because there's this misunderstanding, either it's, well, they're, you're going to get into a lot of it, but a lot of it is because they've talked to Catholics about this, and the Catholics they've asked about this don't understand this That's properly right. either. So we're going to, this is, this is not anything other than what the church actually teaches. This is what the to. formal teaching of the church is, yes. Okay. First, they're misunderstanding Paul. Because in every context where Paul speaks negatively of works and works of the law and boasting and all those other kinds of terms, he has the Judaizers in mind who were insisting at the time that in order to be saved, Gentiles must receive circumcision and keep the customs of Moses, Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem that they must essentially become Jews. This is what Paul's talking about. In Romans 3, 28 and 29, listen to what Paul writes. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There's that nasty phrase. 
Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. And here's a question I want to throw to you, Matt. When Paul says that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law, if he meant that we are justified by faith alone, apart from obedience to God, apart from the need to do anything, why would he immediately say, or is God the God of Jews only? Well, th- what that does is it shows you exactly what he means by works of the law in this particular context. Again, if you separate out that part of this whole where he goes into, is God the God yeah. of the Jews only, or is he of the Gentiles, then all you've got is a proof text. And yeah. proof texts, as you know, I, they, 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 don't, they don't fly very well because you have to isolate them from everything else that's going on in Scripture and say, well, but the Scripture says this. Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't work because, you know, it, we'll use the analogy of you driving down the road and your kids are arguing in the back seat and you turn around and say, I don't want to hear a peep out of anybody for the rest of this trip. Isolate that out of the context. We think that Ken demands silence for everyone in his car moving forward. But chances are, two minutes later, you turn to your lovely wife, Tina, and you take up a conversation. In the context of all that, we know exactly, if we were to pay attention to the context of the situation, we'd know that that no peep from anybody is really directed. And therefore, when the kids begin to point and scream, contradiction, contradiction, they're out of line. They're falsely interpreting. I think I've heard the phrase that a, a, a proof text torn apart from context becomes a pretext for, for false teaching of some kind. And yeah, when Paul says that we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, he doesn't mean apart from obedience of any kind, apart from the need to do anything. He means apart from needing to be circumcised and keep the laws of Moses. Otherwise, why would he immediately say, or is God the God of Jews only? Also, why would he go on in the very next chapter of Romans to spend the entire chapter basically talking about circumcision? if what he meant by works of the law was obedience in general, obedience to God in general. Why would he spend a bunch of column space doing the same thing in Galatia yes. and in Corinth if this wasn't an issue in all parts of the newly formed Yeah, in Christian fact, why world? would he say what he says in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, which is kind of a killer verse for me? This is what he says, summing up his view. He says, listen, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. But keeping the commandments of God. Okay, so here he's basically saying, look, whether you're circumcised or whether you're not, that is not the issue. That is not what counts with God. The thing that counts with God is keeping his commandments. So here Paul actually sets circumcision, the question of circumcision, in total opposition to obedience. It's clear that Paul is not teaching that we're justified by faith apart from having to do anything apart from obedience to God or anything like that. He means by works of the law what the Judaizers were forcing and the reason that the council had to be called in Acts 15, the first council of the Christian church, because these Judaizers were saying, unless Gentiles are circumcised and live according to the laws of Moses, they cannot be saved. Okay, second, Catholicism is not teaching a damning system of works righteousness because the good works that Catholicism advocates are understood to be works produced by God's grace acting in us. Okay, we've already seen that from Trent, but you and I saw this in a number of passages in the Old Testament when we were looking at justification in the Old Testament. We saw how God prophesied what he would do for his people, in his people when the new covenant came. 
passages like Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where Moses said, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you might live. We looked at Jeremiah, we looked at Ezekiel, where he said he'll put his spirit in you and cause you to move, uh, move you to walk in accordance with his laws. And can, yeah. Yeah, Ken, I'm noticing here as you're reading, like in Deuteronomy 36, it doesn't say the Lord your God will impute righteousness to you and to your offspring so that it will be as though you loved the right. Lord your God with right. all your heart. <laughs> He's saying it's going to actually happen. And that's what Ezekiel says. He'll take out a heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to observe my commandments. That's what Ezekiel 36 verses 24 through 27 says. Okay, this is the teaching of the Old Testament prophets, that God is going to change the hearts of his people. He's going to give them a new spirit. He's going to give them the ability to walk in obedience to his commandments. And when we come to the New Testament, we find this confirmed. Here's a passage we never quoted previously, but listen to Paul talking about himself. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, he chalks it up to God's grace. He says Popeye. That's his Popeye moment, Yeah, there you right? go. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked. Oh, there's that evil word. I worked harder than any of them, even more evil. Paul's saying, I work harder than everyone else, though not I, but the grace of God which is in me. And this is precisely what the Council of Trent has in mind when it says this, and I quote, since Christ Jesus himself, as the head into the members, that is, conveys life into the, to its members, as the vine into the branches, that is, conveys life into the branches, continually infuses strength into those justified, which strength always precedes, accompanies, and follows their good works, and without which they could not in any manner be pleasing and meritorious to God. So you're telling me, Ken, that the Catholic Church teaches that your good works are only possible by grace? Yeah, and it goes further than that. It, it wants to say that, that God's grace comes to precede every good work, to accompany every good work, to follow every good work. It's as though every good deed you and I can do as, as justified sons and daughters of God is completely encased in the power of God. And that's why we could say, I mean, you could say, I am working harder than anyone in my family to be obedient to God, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. And I'm sure that that's true. So that no one could boast. Yeah, so that no one right. can boast. Paul is able to say that. And the thing is, the Catholic teaching makes it clear. And from a, from a Calvinist point of view, if anybody stood up on Sunday morning in my congregation and said, I, I just want to say something, you know, I work harder than anyone to be obedient to God. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. He would still be shouted down probably as a heretic for saying that, you know. And yet Paul says it. All right. Third, third reason. We learned that the good works that Catholicism insists on as required for salvation, we learned that they are the works of faith. They are works that flow from faith, not works of the law, and therefore not works in which anyone would boast. They're not like the works that an employee renders to his employer you know, uh, in order to earn a wage and therefore he's able to stand up against the wall, pull out a big fat cigar, smoke it and say, I did my work. I earned my right. wage. And it, I can boast. We it. even see that attitude condemned by Jesus who says, 
you know, these people honor with me, honor mm-hmm. me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Or actually, I think that's, I can't remember what that is. But, yeah. you know, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be entered into the kingdom, but only the, he who does the will of my father. Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of passages throughout the Old and New Testament that say it's not just what you do, it's how you yeah, do it. So, yeah, so the works we're talking about, they're not the works of an employee to his employer who can boast in his wage and boast in his accomplishments. Instead, they are like, they're more like the works that a patient renders to his doctor they are works that flow from trust and they're not works in which you boast as you know that's right and we've talked before about the uh issue of the doctor like say for instance you go to the Mm -hmm. doctor and you have some disease we'll say it's not corona because that's too soon but you go to the doctor and whatever it is that you have you've not been able to solve it through any other means and the doctor gives you some extraordinary set of things to do and uh, you go stand on your head at midnight by the old mill pond and yes you come back cured. You're not going to be bragging about what it is that you did. You're going to say to everybody that you know, go see this doctor. He knows how to tell you what you're supposed to do. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, you're not the one getting the glory from that. The one who gave you the words of eternal life or the one who gave you the words of how to get this weird blister off your elbow, they get the glory. Yes. So summing this up then, the works that we are talking about as Catholics, the works that are required in order to inherit eternal life, they're not the works of the law that Paul was preaching again. They're not works that we um, accomplish in our own strength. They aren't this pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of works. And rather, they are works that are accompanied, preceded, accompanied, and followed by God's grace all the way. And then thirdly, they are not the works by which you earn things. They are the works that flow from humble faith in which no one boasts. Okay? But now... Yeah, it's like what do we say? Okay, so mm-hmm. we just had this. We have this argument five hundred times a day in my house, where we say, "Can you clear the dishes off the table?" Well, they're not my dishes. <laughs> well, I don't care if they're your dishes or not. You do them because that's what you do, because you're part of this family. That, yes, right. Yeah, and we we, we say that yeah. all the time to our kids. Like, you don't do this because it's your fault. Uh, you know, and you have to clean it up. It might be your fault, but you do this. You pick up around the house, you clean up, you get ready for company, you help with the dishes or whatever, because that's what it means to be part of this family. That's right. And you know what? With that illustration, you're kind of uh, moving toward the the fourth reason that I want to give now. You'll see what I mean, but it, it, it dovetails in beautifully. Because in the light of our discussion here of divine sonship, I want to add a fourth reason. That is a a, a fourth reason for believing that the good works that Catholicism teaches as required for salvation are not the works that Protestants have in mind when they imagine that Catholicism is preaching a damning system of works righteousness. Okay? Jesus was known as the carpenter's son. For the first decades of Jesus' life, he worked with Joseph, um, learning from his father how to be a carpenter, how to do the work of a carpenter, imitating what he saw Joseph doing following Joseph's lead, doing what he saw his father doing. And when Joseph passed on and Jesus began his ministry in this world of teaching, of healing throughout Israel, he continued right on, we find, working with his true father now, imitating his father in heaven, accomplishing the work that his father in heaven had given him to do. It's kind of a beautiful image when you tie it in like that to his life with, with Joseph. Yeah, it really is. And especially because Pope Francis just declared the year of St. Joseph, which gives yeah. us ample time to reflect on what it means for Jesus to call both yeah. Joseph and God yeah. Father. So so, so Jesus is learning from his father. He's, he's seeing what his father does from the earliest years. 
He's imitating what he sees his father doing. He's accomplishing the work that his father gives him. And he goes right on doing this with, with God the Father after Joseph has left the scene. In fact, in John chapter 5, we have this incident where Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders go berserk, of course, and they begin wanting to persecute him because after all, he's done this evil thing, a good work on the Sabbath. And then we read, but Jesus answered them, my father is working still. What's that word working? And I am working. This is why the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also called God his own father making himself equal with God. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, there's that grace again, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. So here we find our Lord Jesus imitating his Father, doing what he sees his Father doing, performing the works of his father. And just one chapter earlier in John, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, and he explains to her, this is a wonderful line, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is my food, my meat and my drink is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Matt, a question again, was Jesus performing the works of the law? when he worked to accomplish his father's will? Is, I mean, is this sort of a damning system of works righteousness being lived out in Jesus' life? No, it is him conforming to the father, right? It is him living in unity with the father. Um, that's These are the kinds of things that you do when you're, when you're a son. Uh, these are the kinds of things, I mean, are you performing your know, works righteousness when you do kind things for your wife, Tina? No, you are not. This is the kind of things that you do when you love someone. Yeah, and, and so just what is the point of all this then, tying it all together? And you're dead on in, in, in your answer. Good answer. You get an A+. Plus. Well, Thank you. That's two today at least. You're doing really well. But what's the point of all this, okay? It comes together as this. It's that the good works that the Catholic faith teaches as necessary for salvation, they are not, these works are not the works of the law that Judaizers were demanding. They are not works that we accomplish in our own strength and our own power and in which we might boast. They are not the works of an employee working to earn a wage from his boss. And then nor, finally, the fourth reason, nor are they the works that a slave might render to his master. And I'm thinking again of Islam here. Rather, they are the works of a son working alongside his father, doing only what he sees his father doing, imitating his father, accomplishing his father's business, and bringing glory and praise to his father. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. And again, a lot of Protestants would be completely on board with this understanding. As a matter of fact, perhaps some of our viewers are familiar with the old classic tune by the newsboys, Shine. You know, mm -hmm, talking mm -hmm. about the Matthew five sixteen, let it shine before all men, let them see good works, and then let them glorify the Lord. Steve Taylor, if you're listening, I own all your albums and I love you. Um, but I want to go also to this concept of how this divine sonship, this this idea of fatherhood, 
is so essential to the to the understanding of what what's happening in Christianity. You know, I, I can't help but think of James one twenty seven, which um, has come up here a, a few times. And in James one twenty seven, he says this: religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is mm-hmm. this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this question of caring for the orphans and widows is a recurring theme throughout, especially the book of Acts. And, and it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of the, it's kind of code for take care of everybody who's unfortunate, but orphans and widows are always the ones who are invoked because they both have this need for a father of a family to, to care for them. And that really kind of helps us understand that from the very beginning, Christianity sort of always understood that we were to imitate the Father. That's just what we do because we're Christians. Yeah, and you know what? You mentioned that to me uh, yesterday, and I had never thought of it before, the idea that widows and orphans are both people who need a father. But yeah, it's beautiful. And so let me, I guess, wrap up my own comments by simply saying this, that I came through the years to view the the Reformation doctrine of justification as kind of a legal construct, not a legal, I was going to say a logical construct just dropped over the pages of Scripture, where where you follow out this, this line of logic that God is perfectly holy, and therefore God cannot stand anything but perfect holiness. Well, we can never be perfectly holy in this life, so the only way God can stand us is if a perfect righteousness has been legally credited to our account. And then, yes, God begins to change us and mold us into his image, and we will be perfect once we're in, in heaven. But you see, you see, it's all this kind of legal or, or logical. And therefore, if we think that our obedience in any way, shape, or form has any part in justification, then we've just descended into a damning system of works righteousness. But when you look at the whole thing in terms of divine sonship, as we have here in the fatherhood of God, you know, and you and you see that what they're just teaching is that the kind of obedience being required, it has nothing to do with the works of the law. It has nothing to do with works that we just conjure up and praise ourselves for, and nothing like that. It's the works, the same works that Jesus was talking about when he said, my meat and my drink is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus wasn't a legalist, and we're not legalists. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of On the Journey, and if you did, then please subscribe, uh, share these episodes with your friends. Also, head on over to chnetwork.org. We have episodes of not only On the Journey, going all the way back to the beginning, but also other series like Deep in Christ, Deep in History, Deep in Scripture, Insights, Signposts, over a thousand conversion stories, including Journey Home episodes going all the way back to 1997, all free stuff. So check us out at chnetwork.org. Dot org and uh, let us know what you're thinking. In the meantime, I'm Matt Swaim, Ken Hensley. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week.